Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know that our voicemail this week is about a parent's death. So if you'd like to avoid hearing about that, please skip ahead about two minutes and we'll talk to you then. Hi, Real Question team. My name is Sarah and I'm from the United States. I don't have any memories of my mom being healthy. I was six when she was diagnosed with breast cancer and I watched her health wax and wane for the next eight years. The last two weeks of her life were spent in a coma at my childhood home, waiting to die. Family and friends were in and out of the house a lot during that time, but what can you really say when you know someone will die and there's literally nothing you can do about it? Hey, sorry about your mom. Here's a casserole. Hope you like beans. My aunt was trying to nurse my cousin in my parents' room. At this point, my mom had been completely unresponsive for days. We were a house under siege, waiting for the inevitable. I don't know where I was, but my memory is my aunt coming to get us simply saying, it's time. My family gathered around my mom's bed and I couldn't watch. I just listened to her take her last breaths and then she was gone. I still regret this. I regret not bearing witness to the last moments of a life that was beautiful and difficult and wonderful and sad and too short. I find regret to be a pretty pointless emotion, and I suppose I can't be too hard on my 14-year-old self, but I wish I had watched. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is The Real Question. This week, I'm talking about regret, and I'm so touched by Sarah's voicemail because I think she really introduces a lot of uh, the kind of mixed feelings that I have around this question, that sense of, like, how useful is it to feel this emotion? I think Sarah called it pointless. Like, wanting to be compassionate for myself at a different period of my life and understanding that I was different and the world was different, and at the same time, still wanting to have done something different. And I'm really grateful to Sarah for sharing that story. 
The context of my question is a little different from Sarah's, but I think the question itself is very similar, which is looking back, wishing I had done something different than what I did. Well, Casper, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and we just want to thank the people who helped make it possible. Denise C., Sam O., Sanjay K., Bethany G., Gina D., and Ashley. Thank you so much for all of your support on Patreon. The show would not be made without you. And we also want to thank all of you who are just listening. We can feel you as part of the conversation as you answer us in your heads or out loud. And we're just so grateful. So, Vanessa, here we go. Let me take you back more than a decade. I'm young. I'm handsome. I'm living in Berlin for a year. Okay, because the first two things are still true. (laughs) So this was while I was on my year abroad. It was a charmed moment in my life, certainly, because as a student within the European Union, you got a grant called an Erasmus grant to go study abroad for a year. And as a student in the UK, I got a relatively good government loan And so for the first time, certainly as a student, I felt like I was rolling in it. And I quickly realized that no one was going to check if I actually went to the classes in Germany. And so I was kind of free with money in my pocket in the big city of Berlin for a whole fabulous nine months. And I lived well. You know, I went out and found the best hot chocolate in town. I tested every single cake shop that I could find and found the best cakes. If you need recommendations, hit me up. But the thing that I didn't do was, as someone who's very social, I mean, you know me, I love people, I love being around people, I actually didn't spend a lot of time with other people. I had two standing commitments. One was my American college-style a cappella group with whom I sang a solo from Rent, highlight of my life. And the other one was my queer hip-hop dance troupe that I danced in. And these are just like things that no one else in my life now knows or understands about me because I really lived into a different Casper. I had asymmetrical hair. I had tight red skinny jeans. Like I got arrested by the police. (laughs) All of this stuff. But the thing that I didn't do was like go out. Like I spent a lot of time in my apartment on my own. I watched every single episode of 24. I read lots of books and poetry and My sister came to visit for a weekend, and she's very adventurous and extremely cool. And she went clubbing every night of the weekend that she was with me, and literally did more in a weekend than I did in an entire nine months that I was in Berlin. And I look back at that time now as, you know, happily married, feeling pretty good about where I am in life. But I look back at that time and I'm like, why didn't I kiss more boys? I had nothing to lose. I felt good in myself and like the city was there for the taking, but I feel like I was timid and I feel like I was a bit scared, certainly of going out in the Berlin nightclub scene because it's known to be this kind of very revelrous place with lots of drugs and sex and all sorts of other stuff. And so I'm wondering what I do with that feeling of like, I wish I had made different decisions while I was there in Berlin. First of all, I love the year that it sounds like you had. And I want photos of asymmetrical haired, red tight jeans, hip hop dancing while singing Rent Casper. Like everything about that Casper sounds wonderful as does current Casper. I'm wondering what that feeling of regret feels like. 
Is it sad? Is it shame? Right? Like if we were to go on the feelings wheel, like oh, what's yeah. the feeling under the feeling? Because I feel like regret is sort of a heady way to say something. That's such a good question. Okay. I've literally pulled up the feelings wheel in front of me. If you want to look at it, go to feelingswheel.com. It's this great tool that just helps you identify like what's really the feeling underneath the feeling. And I'm seeing embarrassed, hesitant. I had a great time. Like I enjoyed myself, but it's more that I, I guess I wish I hadn't been afraid. I, I think I maybe looked at Berlin's nightlife as either being at home with mint tea by myself, you know, listening to the Bugle podcast before John Oliver became a huge deal, or going out, getting totally off my face, which isn't something I ever do, you know, having illicit sex on a stairway with you know, like 10 random Germans. And so I think I think I looked at the world with, I, I guess, a dichotomous cavern between, but there are 825 different options between those two polar opposites in a way. And I just, I didn't think that they were available to me or I didn't know how to find them. What is a an imagined thing that you regret not doing? Okay, well, <laughs> uh, there was a very cute boy in my singing group who I think, I genuinely think was straight. But I would have loved to have like a little romance. And Boris, the physics teacher, was very handsome. But like, I never even asked. You know, I, I never even tried because I, I think I was afraid. And, and right. Like, I was still pretty new at, like, being out and gay. And I I guess I just didn't have a lot of models of what it was like to be me. There were amazing people in my life who were, like, super out and were, like, partying every night and getting very drunk and having a great time. But I was like, I like knitting, you know? (laughs) Like, what what am I going to do? You know, I don't drink. I guess I didn't see the pathway between that kind of beautiful Berlinian romance and who I was at that point. So Casper, you know me. I'm so good at justifying. (laughs) I can easily spin a story to you, right? Of like, you were at your capacity of newness and whatever it was led you to Sean and this moment. And you were so brave in so many other ways, right? I can immediately start justifying it. But you obviously feel still this sense of regret And so I'm wondering what that feels like now. You are 34 years old. You're looking back at 20-year-old Casper. And what what is this experience like for you now? You know, the story I told about when I came home from that year was like, I learned to enjoy my own company. And it's true. Like, I would always avoid being on my own before that year. And when I came back, I was like, I love being by myself. And that was a great gift and, and, and one I still appreciate. So This is what's been so confusing about it. I've never regretted it until recently. Like, I'm not someone who carries a lot of regret. So I've been surprised by the feeling of regret. And I think that's what's made it a little destabilizing is that for the rest of my life, I'm like, oh, I love my work. I love, you know, where I live. I love so much about my life. But what's going to happen in 10 years where I'm suddenly like, damn it, I wish I had been a muralist while I lived in New York. Or what if I suddenly changed career and became a stagehand on Broadway, or I started a folk music festival, or, you know, I like there are these other lives that I don't want to look back on and think, damn it, I should have done that. Oh, I love this. I love this so much because you're not beating yourself up. You're saying, 
I want to keep my eyes open, maybe push myself out of my comfort zone twice over. Because 20-year-old Casper was putting himself out of his comfort zone, right? Yes. He was like talking to bakery employees in a language that wasn't his own. I'm guessing it was the first time you hip-hop danced. Absolutely. I went to work in an innovation lab for the largest German newspaper, and I was one of the few professional journalists working in Second Life, which at that point was like the digital place to be. (laughs) Like, I had some great adventures. Yeah. And you're saying, why wasn't I twice as brave? Yeah. And I love that you're using this opportunity to ask yourself these questions now of how can I be twice as brave now? And so I'm really curious to explore this, right? Like how much do you want to learn to push yourself and how much do you want to learn to just accept like you did great and you're doing great? None of us can operate at 100% capacity 100% of the time. And, you know, even vacuums need to be recharged. Mm. (laughs) So let's look at your text and sort of see which way this takes us. Yeah. Well, the first text that I brought is a poem by Lucille Clifton, and it's called Won't You Celebrate With Me? Lucille Clifton is a prolific and celebrated poet who lived mostly in Buffalo, New York. She's a Black woman. Her work emphasizes endurance and strength through adversity, especially focusing on the experience of Black women in in the United States. She she was writing a lot about familial domestic life and the beauty and pain that, that came from that. This is the ultimate flex. In 1987, She was the first author ever to have two books chosen as finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in the same year for her collections Good Woman and Next. I've heard her poetry described as focusing on only what is essential. And that's very true when you look at the poems written out. There's very little punctuation. All her words are written in in lowercase letters. So I want to look at this poem and be extremely clear that this is a poem written by a Black woman about the experience of being a Black woman in America. I am not a Black woman, but there is something in this poem that resonated with my experience, and and it's such a beautiful piece of poetry that I I wanted to look at it as as the first text. So I'll read it for you and then then give you the exact phrase that I want to work with um, for this reflection. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up, here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed." Oh my God, I'm just obsessed with that ending. It's so incredible. (laughs) I love that. So the phrase I I really want to use as the text for this reflection is, what did I see to be except myself? And that resonated with me a lot because I was very lucky in many ways as, as a young gay man. I had an uncle who's been with his partner, my other uncle, for like decades, you know, certainly already by the by the early 2000s the world was extremely different from how it had been 10 20 30 years before and yet i definitely still felt different you know all the ways in which queer kids do uh, uh, even today and so that line 
it, first of all, it brings me to, to the self-compassion that I felt so much in Sarah's voicemail as well, right? That sense of, well, how, how could I have been different than what I was? What did I see to be except myself? I love that Clifton says, I made it up. Uh, you know, it's, it's that sense. But then she's also saying, I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. So there's a kind of creative effort to the life that she's living. And I guess the way I thought about my life was this was a time of identity creation, right? Like I'm not in a queer hip hop dance troupe now because ultimately like that wasn't exactly the place for my gifts to land. I think at that age, so many of us are still experimenting with who who we are and who we want to become. And so in some way, that time was a time of experimentation and trying on different things that I might do or become. And so that's, yeah, it, it brings me to a place of acceptance, I guess, when I, when I read this poem. Casper, I'm wondering, so the line, what did I see to be except myself? I think it can also be read with a lot of anger. Mm. And I'm wondering if part of what you regret is that the world wasn't built for queer kids. Mm. I mean, is the regret at you or at the world? Huh. God, isn't it sad? I'm tr- I'm trying to imagine what it could have been like and how that would have been different for me. It's actually very hard to imagine what I might have wanted, to imagine what kind of spaces or opportunities or, you know, the, <laughs> the foreign students knitting association who like boys. <laughs> like, I don't know. But even before Berlin, right? Like the world wasn't built for you at six and eight and 12. And I guess I'm just saying that I see anger in the sentence of like, what did I see to be except myself, Mm. right? Like what other things did you show me? It's like both non-white and woman, I made it up, right? Like I had to make it up. You gave me nothing. And that's a lot of what I hear you saying of like, I had to make it up. I, I The two stories that I had were mint tea or cocaine. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I had to figure it out. Right. Right. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, she also says born in Babylon, right? And that imagery takes us back to, you know, the Israelites in exile, like away from the place that they should have been or the world as it should have been. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Even the whole frame of like, come celebrate with me. Yes, it's in some way like Joyce and Victoria's, but mostly it's it's indignant, right? It's like something has tried to kill me and has failed, right? Like there's a there's an exhausted, yes, victorious, but mostly like <sighs> endurance is really what shines through it. Again, I really want to be clear that like, obviously what she's writing about in her experience is not my experience. And I think that that speaks to maybe part of this memory or part of this question that I'm less comfortable with, which is like, anger isn't a a feeling I like feeling. And so I don't spend a lot of time with it. But yeah, I wish I could have had a sort of dirty dancing, at least the first half of the movie experience (laughs) while I was in Berlin, right? Like that it would have been that easy and that like, oh, smile across the room. Like, great. Let's go make out behind the bike shed. There's just always so much, at least in in my consciousness, right? Of course, there's the legacy of AIDS, especially. Like, there's just so much around gay sexuality, which still is made to feel dangerous. And so anything that could lead there, or re- like, I, I maybe I wonder if that was part of what I was, like, shutting down, because 
yeah, there is something frightening ultimately. So I was just thinking about a very similar thing yesterday, Casper. Mm. My whole 20s was defined by the fact that I needed a certain kind of job for healthcare. I had a pre-existing condition. And so I couldn't do these like cool jobs that I wanted to do because I didn't have access to my medication if I didn't have healthcare. Mm. And recently when the ACA got confirmed for the freaking third time in the Supreme Court, I was just thinking like, Everything I've been able to accomplish in my huh. 30s huh. is because of the ACA. Like, I have a legal right to insurance now, regardless of having a pre existing condition. Right. And so, my 30s are so much freer than my 20s were. And that makes me mad, right? Yeah. Like, my 20s, I was just doing miserable jobs that I hated because I needed insurance and because there was an unjust world. And like, that sucked. And like, I just think about all the people before me for whom that was true for their whole careers, right? Like I had one job that I loved and it was this teeny nonprofit that could pay me a living wage, but could not afford to pay for my healthcare. And so it kept me at 32 hours a week Mm. and I had to leave it, right? And Mm. And I I regret the world. I regret the world. Mm. And now I'm grabbing it, right? I'm like, ah, the ACA. I can start my own company. And like, I can do this for other people. And I'm just mad at the world for you. Mm. You had these two stories. You had this story about AIDS and dangerous sex. And then you had this story about art as expression. And you picked the story that you could see yourself in and i i don't know i screw the world well i i really appreciate you sharing that and like i'm angrier on your behalf than i am on mine because that is (laughs) oh i'm angry on your behalf (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what solidarity is maybe (laughs) but it's it's i mean it's unthinkable and it's also you know, I'm, I will be glad to say this because I'm not CEO of Not Sorry, but it's why you've always been so insistent on us paying a fair wage and having healthcare for everyone who works with us and all those things for which I am so grateful and proud of. But it, it yeah, it's it's this sense of like all these other people in history, right? Like what, what might yeah. they have done? How could yeah. we have received the gifts that they had to offer? How were people yeah. made invisible? And how does that still happen now? Like the yeah. so uncountable number of people who don't have the access and the freedoms and and the time yeah it's so helpful because that's that would not have it wasn't my original reading of this line but it it certainly feels like that's 70 percent of what i read in it now and how i want to think about that time as well that it's it's even less about self-compassion in a way and it's more an anger at the structures that made that the experience and then the other 30 percent can be self-compassion you know right no and like sarah too right it's just like bullshit that sarah's mom was dying when she was 14 yeah right like sarah did the best she could sarah did great sarah went into the room and listened like sarah did great And the difficulty level of that for a 14-year-old was just like too fucking high, right? And by the way, again, patriarchy is part of that. Not that like dads don't die young or men don't die young, but like research on women's cancers is like 30 years behind research on men's cancers and her her mother died of breast cancer. So like like 14-year-old Sarah should not have been in this position, right? Mm. This is like... She didn't have any other option. What did she see to be except herself? A super brave 14-year-old girl who totally understandably 
regrets not having seen her mom, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I understand that feeling of like, I wish I had that image, Mm -hmm. that last moment with my mom, but like, she was perfectly brave. Yeah. Well, I think this is another part of the story that maybe we haven't touched on yet, which is like, whatever choice we make, we regret that there were other choices we didn't make. Like, we can have chosen everything right. And there would have been things we could have done differently right. I guess that's part of the self-compassion is thinking about all the ways I could have done that year in Berlin wrong. And I didn't do those, you know. You didn't. So there's 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 a gift in that as well. I mean, I still have this question about like how you can maybe use this realization to avoid regret when you're looking back on your 30s. Like, yeah. so now what? I guess yeah. is the question I still hold. Yeah, that. That's exactly right. And I I think my second text really speaks to that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Casper, so what is your second text? Well, I have a lovely little book by Alain de Botton, who is a name that maybe people are familiar with. He's a, I think he's part French, but he's also an English author. He set up the School of Life with my friend Sophie Howarth. And he's a a kind of a a popular philosopher and a a wonderful writer. He wrote a book called uh, Religion for Atheists, which was very influential for me. But he also wrote a little book called How Proust Can Change Your Life. This was kind of his breakout book, I think, in the 90s. And it it looks at the writing of Marcel Proust, kind of famous for his Madeleines and the, the way in which he sees the world, the way he pays attention and writes these wonderful essays about his experience. And the the book that Alain de Botton wrote was really trying to find, like, what are the life lessons from Proust's writing and living that that we can take with us in in the contemporary world. So some of the chapters are things like how to take your time, how to be a good friend, how to suffer successfully. My favorite mini story that he describes is the the town that Proust fictionalized is this little town called Ilie, but in in Proust writing it's called Combray and all these people come and like walk around this perfectly ordinary town just because of the way that Proust described it and he's like 
traveling to this town is exactly not what Proust would want you to do. Proust would want you to walk around your own town with the way of looking that he had, right? To turn the the ordinary into the extraordinary. So the particular line I want to draw out for this conversation is when uh, de Botton is, is, is kind of gleaming a piece of insight and he says, there are two methods by which a person can acquire wisdom, painlessly via a teacher or painfully via life. So it kind of sets up these two options that the way we can learn or become wise is, is either by listening to what other people tell us, elders, betters, wisers, or that we just have to experience it and that that's part of the puzzle. And so I don't want to excuse or belittle the hurt and the way in which we should be angry about the ways in which people get put into positions where they suffer. And this suffering has happened, or like this experience of regret now, which I I wouldn't quite describe as suffering, but it may be a worry that it has. Like, what do I do with that? Like, are there people I can go and learn from? Or is it just something that I have to experience and some sort of wisdom will come from it. Do you think that there's a quality difference, like a qualitative difference between acquiring wisdom painlessly or painfully? Definitely. I don't even know if you can actually act on the wisdom of others. I've, at least in my life, I think about it like you can recognize patterns because someone has told you something but at least usually I don't recognize it until I've experienced it, right? Uh, what I don't like about the sentence is that de Botton makes these two things sound like you get the same things out of it. And I'm like, you get yeah. so much more out of it when you learn it painfully. I wish it wasn't true. Yeah. But when I learn it painfully, I learn it much more. Huh. I'm sitting here reading this quote. And like, the thing that now stands out to me is that what the two options, you know, whether you get it from a teacher or from your own experience are both about is acquiring wisdom. And I'm like, I don't think I was in Berlin to acquire wisdom. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I'm now suddenly a little stuck with it. Except that you did acquire wisdom. You acquired the wisdom of I like my own company, which is, I I would argue, one of the most important pieces of wisdom. And I mean, another issue with the sentence is that I think it's like a false equivalency of like, sometimes you can learn things sort of painlessly via life, right? Like, Mm -hmm. You can like take a big risk and it super pays off. And you're like, oh, I learned that risk taking is great. And like, that was not only painless, but a delight. (laughs) And like, it sounds like you learned this really important piece of wisdom that you like your own company quite painlessly, right? It Mm. was, it tasted like cake. (laughs) And that's great. I feel like the question you might be asking is like, what incredible piece of wisdom could I have learned if I'd been willing to risk pain. Mm. Is that the thing you regret, not risking pain? It's so interesting because at the towards the end of that year in Berlin is when I, on, on a bit of a whim, applied on, to this incredible experience of 20 young people going to the Arctic, which I eventually got on, and, and that really started my climate activism, or at least it kickstarted it from like being involved on a campus level to trying to organize on a national level. And that experience as beautiful as it was, was also really painful, right? Like risking, you know, your heart in a movement that you believe in and then it not working, right? Like not getting the results that you wanted with the campaigning. Like that was learning from painful experience. And I was scarred by it. Like it's, it's kept me back from being involved in, 
a political movement in that way again, because it's intense, beautiful, but also really intense. And I think maybe what I look back on, this is so interesting. I look back on that year in Berlin, I'm like, it was too easy. Like, it was just, it was really fun. <laughs> like, I didn't have to do anything for anyone. I was in charge of my own time. Like, financially, I was stable. I had a mattress on the floor, and I thought I was very bohemian. You know, like, I just, I had such a great time. Even if it didn't fit into what you would think you would be doing, having a great time in Berlin, of all places. So it it felt painless, I guess, in a way. If you had risked pain, what do you hope that you would have learned? I'd have been a better kisser. <laughs> I mean, I've never kissed you, so I don't know <laughs> how good you are. Does Sean have complaints? No complaints. No, he said yes. We're still married. <laughs> no, but it's, um, yeah, that's a good question. What could I have learned? I mean, I guess it's an endless question. Like, I kind of e don't even want to answer it because then I feel like I'll get lost in the past, right? Because every moment could have been different from my entire existence. And to want it to be different, I think, is just creating more suffering. So I kind of, I, like, I don't want to go there <laughs> in a way. But the thing I can choose is now. And I think I'm an okay kisser at this point. So, like, hopefully we're good on that account. But I guess that there are things that might look painful that might still be worth choosing in the future. Like, I have this wild dream of this folk festival that I think could be really cool. And I don't know how to do it or how to make it happen. But like, I think the world would be better for it. At least my world would be. And like a lot of other people who would like reading A Midsummer Night's Dream around a campfire and singing and listening to great folk music and camping out in the woods somewhere for a couple nights. I'll help. Doesn't that sound good? Yes. Yeah. Let's do it together. <laughs> okay. So folk festival, I'm on board. It would make the world better. So why aren't you doing this via life? Because it's hard. <laughs> I think this is maybe I kind of come back to the Berlin story again of like, I was doing what I could. I, I, I feel like I have a couple of pokers, iron pokers in, in the metaphorical fire. And like, you can't do everything and certainly not all at once. And so it would be painful to like make this happen now, both in the process because of the extra time and finances and everything else, you know, just the effort, like wrangling people, organizing a festival is basically just chasing people and like trying to make things happen and it always falling short in some way. Like the process would be painful, but then also the outcome wouldn't be what the dream is in my head. And that in itself would also be painful. And so like, I'm like, let's just leave this in dreamland for now. When I'm 50, I'll do it. You know, it's kind of one of those dreams. Yeah. But why does that feel bad to you now? Saying it's a goal of mine to do this at 50 seems like a really reasonable thing. Like, Oh, I, I like the way you said that. It's a goal of mine to do it at 50. Because in my brain, it's like, it's on the to-do list, but I'm not getting to it, so I'm failing. But the way oh. you just said it sounds way better. It's like, oh, I, I can't do it now, but it's a, like, it's not even I can't do it now. Like, I don't want to do it now. Yeah. It's on the to-do list for when I'm 50. When well, I magically, he... you know, have lots of time and energy. <laughs> or you've arranged your life to make sure it's possible and you have 15 years to arrange your life in that way. Isn't the way to make something not a regret is like to make it a, cho a conscious choice? Is that a way yes. to avoid something being a regret? 
I like this so much. Or like move it from active regret to ghost ship grief regret, right? Of like, it's not me that messed up. It's I'm going to send this off into the world and like maybe I'll catch up with it at 50. Like those feel like different kinds of regret. And one is where we're beating ourselves up. Oh, I could have done it differently. I could have done it differently. And the other one is where you are like, I regret that I'm mortal and (laughs) I don't have infinite resources and whatever. So I'm going to put this regret on a ship and push it off into a lake and like hopefully the wind will bring it back to me. Or even more, what if I just start putting aside like a very small amount of money every month now that in 15 years time will be a budget that I can actually like organize this incredible festival with. And it hasn't been painful And I already know that it's going to happen. It's just not going to happen right now. It's going to happen then, God willing. And like suddenly it's not this sense of like an impending thing that is a missed opportunity. And is this going to be another regret? But it's like, no, no, it's a plan, but it's like a far away plan. So we'll get there when the time is right. But it's practically being made possible because I'm saving a tiny little bit of money every month. This is a genius idea. If you put in 50 a month now, I just did some quick math. In 15 years, you'll have $9,000. So if every once in a while you put in an extra five, you'll be at 10 grand. That is huge. Everyone put in your calendar (laughs) the summer of 2036. It's going to be an incredible folk festival. Kissing boys is encouraged. Skinny red jeans is encouraged. Asymmetrical haircuts are mandatory. And we're all going to have a great time. Oh my God, I'm genuinely excited about this. (laughs) So it sounds to me like we have exonerated past Casper, that we like grieve that he didn't get to do certain things. We are not exonerating the world, but like past Mm. Casper did great. Past Casper Mm. did great. And the other thing that we're not doing is exonerating future Casper, right? Like you have to keep doing great. You have to keep joining (laughs) groups that you wouldn't otherwise have joined and getting fun haircuts and end up like getting brave enough to get really involved in campaigning for climate justice, Mm. right? Like Mm. past Casper did great. We just need current and future Casper to do that great. Mm. And to simultaneously try to change the world so that it's easier for future. I guess maybe that's what I want to pull out from the de Botton quote Mm. is like, it's our job to painfully change the world so that the next generation can acquire good wisdom from us and not antiquated Mm. wisdom from us. Oh, I love that. And it's in the calendar, 2036. I am so excited about this. I can't tell you. I'm already starting to think about lineups. I have a dress commissioned in my head. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes, fancy dresses. Obviously, there's going to be some sort of like evening theme. Ah. Well, I no, I'm thinking like a fairy dress with like a flower yes. crown. Yes. And I want someone to braid my hair into like a braid crown. I just want crowns yes. on crowns. You know how I love crowns. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. And thank you also, Lucille Clifton, incredible poet, and Alain de Botton, and I guess little Marcel Proust as well. And thanks everyone for listening. It's such a pleasure. And thank you to Sumitra from Kochi, India, who sent in this gem that I think is exactly where we're ending. 
Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Oh, tingles. Can you read that one more time? Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Hmm. Beautiful. So, Casper, I'm going to do an upcoming episode about what does the question, are you okay, mean? What I would love to hear in a voicemail is a time where somebody asked you, are you okay, and you said no. And what did Mm. that mean when you said no? Because I feel like usually people are like, are you okay? And you're like, yeah. But there are important moments where we say, no, I'm not okay. And so if you could tell me a story about a time that you said that. I would really appreciate it. And you can email us a voicemail at realquestion at notsorryproductions.com. You've been listening to The Real Question. We can only make this show thanks to your support. If you have the means to help us out, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash realquestionpod. We really do have amazing perks there. So like you should go on a little shopping spree on our Patreon. (laughs) If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and at Real Question Pod and Twitter at The Real Q Pod. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Nick Bull and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks to Sarah for her voicemail, to Julia Augie, Nikki Zoltan, Molly Baxter, Stephanie Purcell, and every single one of our patrons. We're so grateful. We'll be with you next week. Thank you, Casper. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.